Welcome, welcome to the eighth episode of the Revolutionary Star broadcasting live and direct from Harare, Zimbabwe to the comfort of wherever you are right now in our global world. Today is Sunday the 31st of May 2020 and officially here in Zimbabwe we have now come to the end of our ninth week under the extended indefinite lockdown. It's been another crazy week but um, like we said, we moved off of uh, Zimbabwe, lockdown and so forth. We kind of seen the parameters of what we're dealing with right now in the nation. So we will just be touching on that here and there. Today we wanted to go deeper and uh, move on to what we had been discussing about on our Africa Day and go a little bit deeper into that as well. And our issue today is going to be on the, it's a little bit dense. So I hope you bear with me here. But at least we want to make sure that we establish a narrative moving forward when we go back to be, go back to like talk, talking regular topical issues on our podcast. Um, the topic for today is on uh, the Mgagao de- Declaration and its repercussions on Zimbabwe democracy and political parties. Like I said, this podcast is going to be a little bit dense right a little bit substantive so i'm asking you to bear with me this uh podcast but these are just uh markers on our podcast for the narratives and the topics we're going to be discussing in the future so we can always uh reflect and uh reference to specific podcasts where we break down the substantive part of whatever other things that we're going to highlight or gloss over in the future so this is one of those topics where it's going to be more like a reference topic a reference podcast for you to go back to and listen to whenever we mention specific things moving forward on issues that are actually current and not past okay so again Today's podcast uh, for Sunday, the 31st of May, uh, following up on the Africa Day uh, podcast, is on the Mgagao Declaration and its repercussions on Zimbabwe democracy, Zimbabwean democracy, and how that also affects political parties. So, uh, we all know Zimbabwe is in an economic uh, death spiral right now, and there's really no light at the end of the tunnel right now. Uh, both political parties seem to be uh, in the desert right now in terms of um, uh, actual practical uh, maneuvering of getting the country out of the, the, you know, off the road as it is right now. But politically, they're making moves. But if you're looking at something that actually develops the country, we're nowhere to be found. So this podcast we want to look at the political fabric of what exactly uh, what's the stitching within the political fabric or these seams that stitch together the politics that we have today of opposition politics and ZANU-PF politics how does that lead us to where we are right now whereby um political gamesmanship is really at a high right now within MDC Alliance and ZANU-PF but none of them are talking about practical things because for all intents and purposes ZANU-PF runs the government uh, and the, the, the nation but MDC at a local municipality level it runs the the, the the urban cities and most of their councillors are the ones that control most of the urban areas but both areas are not really doing anything that is actually productive so on actually administratively running the country, both parties politically have failed. However, from political gamesmanship and political intrigue uh, perspective, they're both doing a, a great job within the party and against each other. So let's let's deal with this, right? 
I think we need to go a little bit way, 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 way back and look at uh, first the geography politically of where Zimbabwe is located within all of this, right? Um, Zimbabwe is between the Zambezi and the Limpopo rivers. So for like as way back, just remember to use those two rivers as a way of demarcating where Zimbabwe is. So Limpopo and Zambezi river, Limpopo, Zambezi river, right? Within those boundaries from as early as the 10th to like the mid 20th century, uh, a lot of immigration happened into that area, that area that we're talking about. We're looking at this from a geopolitical point of view, first and foremost. Now, from the 10th to about the mid 20th century, we saw people who later on become the ancestors of the Shona uh, clan, the Nguni clan, and other uh, ethnic uh, clans, as well as the Ndevele, right? All of this, but Devele is again Nguni. So let's just say Shona and Nguni is where we actually saw a lot of uh, immigrants who had some type of dialects or some attachment to those two clans coming in and uh, populating uh, in between those two rivers, Zambezi and the Limpopo River. Now, let's go into uh, pre-colonial. This is before colonialism uh, happened. This is just the migration that I'm talking about. Like I said, we're going to go deep into this. Uh, this is pre-colonial. This is before white people came through. These were people already settling on the land. They already had their own predispositions, but it was on tribal basis. And it wasn't really, uh, what can I say? It was there, right? But it was a multi-ethnic society. It was inhabited by maybe like, for example, the Shangani, the Tsonga, the Swenge. This was uh, the southern eastern part of the Zimbabwe plateau. Remember, Zimbabwe is on a plateau. So that's the southern eastern part of Zim. We're looking at the Shangani, the Tonga, the Swenge. And then we also have the Venda, which was in the south in the borderlands. This is within the South Africa. So here we got the Venda. We also had the Tonga in the north of Zimbabwe. Remember, this is in between Zambezi. And so just follow with me here. Shangani, Tonga, Swenge. This is the southern eastern parts of Zimbabwe. Venda. That's the southern part, which is bordering with South Africa. That's the Venda part there. Then we have the Tonga, which is in the north. That's the Tonga, the or the even the yeah the Tonga. That's where we're looking at Mozambia, right? That's where they were over there, right? And then we've got the Kalanga. Then we also have the Soto Twana, Twana Soto Kalanga Botswana area there. Then we also have the Ndevele that was in the south uh, west part. Shangani Tonga Swenge. When you think southeastern, as I mentioned before, that's Kuna Mozambique. So this is like where these people just started. Multi. This is before pre-colonial. This is before white people came through. This is how Zim looked. It had all these disparate groups uh, planted uh, across Zimbabwe, and up to now, the, these groups exist. But I want you to understand that this is before white people actually came and settled on onto uh, our uh, our nation. So, from uh, both historians and language specialists, uh, have already shown that missionaries and the need to standardize native languages contributed significantly to the invention of ethnicity. What does that mean? White people in their need to make sure that they get shit moving, uh, capitalism, uh, uh, industrial revolution, they needed to standardize things as soon as possible. It's actually in a white paper that was developed for India, which they then used to colonize Zimbabwe. I will try and reference that white paper uh, on the podcast notes. So, 
this was just uh what can i say administrative what they had to do they and this is why they always made sure that they moved around with white missionaries white missionaries were more like uh the translators take up all the the la- la- languages standardize them or, or convert them into something that is understandable from an english point of view using the nouns and the the, the vowels that uh white people anglo-saxon use the ae or oos and so forth right as much as possible try and dilute it or mix it into something that is an english type of standard or lexicon that they could understand so again this is proven as a fact it's not something that we're debating both historians and language specialists have already shown that missionaries and the colonial drive to standardize um, native languages contributed significantly to the invention of ethnicity. So, remember those borders I talked to you about before? Those borders were further cemented when when colonialists came now. Because now they went into those pre-border areas, the Swenge, the Tonga, the Sototswana, the Ndivele, uh, the Karanga, and they started to standardize those uh, native languages so that they could be uh, decipherable from an English ear. So what they ended up, uh, uh, what can I say, uh, diffusing into a lexicon that English people could understand were 53 vernacular languages, right? That's what they got for them. They got 53 vernacular languages. Then they codified these languages. Codified just means they made it standard. Whoever is coming here, the new white settler who's coming here, everything here taught that standardized language. And once they've te- taught that standardized language, they then return back to the African and teach that African the language that they have now uh, standardized. So basically, they were erasing a lot of your own language as an African by doing this. Because they wanted to make sure that somebody who's coming from uh, Britain or from South Africa who's a boy or a, or a Calvinist could understand or at least be able to uh, give instructions to his African uh, African uh, workers or slaves, whatever you want to call them, um, with something that is codified and standardized. So that means they've taken our language, they've standardized it, now they're teaching our language back to us. This is what happened. So this is what they mean historians when they say that it was standardized during this time and it then cemented the ethnicity that was already there. So. 53 vernacular languages were codified and uh, orthography established for missionary missionaries who came to Zimbabwe and were spreading evangelism, educational purposes, and administrative purposes. So, like I said, they've standardized it. They've thrown out all the shit they, they don't understand in our own languages, specifically different type of uh, disparate languages. They've thrown out the shit that they cannot translate into a lexicon understandable to the English ear. And then they've remained with what they now cement. And that cementation happened along tribal and ethnic uh, lines that I explained with that were there pre-colonial, but it wasn't a big deal, but it was there pre-colonial. So up until now, 2020, we find ourselves in still using that administrative structure that was set up by colonialists, specifically for a, a reason of trying to make sure that they can uh, efficiently uh, expropriate Zimbabwe. But we are still using that uh, system up until now. So you need to understand this moving forward before we even get into uh, the Mgagao Declaration. This is where the birth of tribalism really began. And then the cementation of tribalism started from there. So there's actually a book. Uh, the book is called uh, The Report on the Unification of Shona Dialects. Uh, it was published in 19, 1931. 
this book uh, of Shona dialects, remember, there's, there's no such thing as Shona. That's another thing you need to understand. There is no such thing as Shona. But this is a society of white people who are coming into a nation and they're trying to standardize it as much as possible. It's easier to standardize things to the closest uh, uh, lexicon or linguistic lexicon that they can understand. So this is how you find Karangas, Zezurus and everything all lumped into one group and called Shonas. There's no such thing as Shona. They created this, right? I understand that. They created that. Okay, so the book we're talking about is called The Report on the Unification of Shona Dialects. It was published in 1931. Now, this book uh, is still, you can find it here in Zim. Go to the archives, you can find it, right? But it's created and they called it the Shona language, right? And this book uh, was used administratively, never room white people, white, white, uh, colonial settler mentality and missionaries in manufacturing a Shona identity. This is not a conspiracy theory, uh, comrades. I'm trying to make you understand because m- m- most of the problems come from the Shonas. Let me be honest, right? So we need to understand this. The Shona identity was created from an administrative point of view through this book so that they could have something that they could go throughout Zimbabwe and standardize. They were not doing this because they, it's a diabolical plan of trying to brainwash and, uh, you know, mentally enslave uh, Africans. No, it was from trying to just standardize uh, any piece of property you have and so that you can actually make it easier to use the workforce that's, that is on hand and extract the resources in the ground that you need. You need to be able to communicate with your black African who can tell you where the gold is, who can tell you where's the, what's the best place for the cattle to graze, who can also tell you how best to clear the land so you need to standardize these things it wasn't about it was about the money it was about buku dollars dollar dollar bills nothing else no no conspiracy theory but from that shona people were birthed we became an identity we became a a, 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 a monoculture a, 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 sorry a nomenclature Right, we now became monolithic. Even right up to now, the year 2020, Shona is seen as a monolithic thing. But only you who was born in Zimbabwe realize, which is no, there's a way difference between a Zezuru and a Karanga, or from a person who lives in Bindura from a person who lives in Mashingo, or Manika and the Manika and the Karanga. Way, way different. You can't even say those two people are related. Yes, they speak dialects, but they're different people. This is what the white people did. So. Uh, one of our intelligentsia in Zimbabwe, uh, Solomon uh, Mumbeshore, he captured this nicely when he said that uh, the overall contribution of colonialism to the identity problems in Zimbabwe uh, were started by the seeds of ethnic factor being derived from the pre-colonial t- uh, past. So remember, the way we settled in Zimbabwe from a geographical point of view helped the colonial era pro, uh, by providing a fertile soil in which the ideology of tribalism germinated, blossomed and was further propagated by the white settler infrastructure. They took an existing thing and then they just, you know, uh, supersized it. That's pretty much what they did, right? So, by the time settlers come in, they've now cemented tribalism. It now exists up until now, settlers have not yet realized that they can use it against us. Don't forget that. 
They've just created something which at the time is of no use to them because it's more. what's more important is creating a language which they understand themselves. They don't want you speaking shit that they don't understand. And they'll rather teach you your language, which is what they did. Up until now, we are still using uh, Shona language that was uh, created by white people back for us. Think about that as we move forward and talk about Africa Day, uh, uh, slavery. We have still a long way off. Anyway. So we move on, we move on, we move on. Um, we now get a black bourgeoisie. We get black intelligentsia in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Rhodesia. This black intelligentsia, black bourgeoisie is represented by people like, uh, John Com. Uh, try, uh, union workers, uh, uh, I mean, sorry, sorry Joshua Nkomo, uh, Indians. Uh, this is where the intelligence I come through. Indians are, are one of that uh, race here in Zimbabwe, which is look, overlooked upon a lot. Let me repeat this overlooked upon a lot and contributed to Zimbabwe's independence a lot, but they are overlooked. We'll get into that another topic. Right now, let's keep moving. Right? So, the first political party was called uh, SRANC, S-R-A-N-C. It was a mass nationalist party for black people that started here in Zimbabwe. And its ideological position was framed uh, from a moderate and a conservative liberal imagination of liberation. This is black bourgeoisie and uh, black intelligentsia at the time. Teachers, maybe a business owner in the black community, they came up with this one, right? Uh, from it, the existing documents that are there, the issue of uh, national belonging was never there. They never saw a Zimbabwe. They never saw uh, black identity. All they wanted was integration with white people. That's what they wanted. That was strong. That's the first party that was formed here in, 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 in Zimbabwe or Southern Odisha, whatever you want to call it. Strong was succeeded by NDP. NDP was formed January the 1st, 1960 uh, in Highfields, uh, right? It defined itself as a political party initiated and led by Africans. Amongst its aims was the struggle for and attainment of uh, the freedom of African people from Southern Rhodesia and establishing and granting one man, one vote for all inhabitants of Southern Rhodesia. This was a departure from Srank. This is where Joshua Nkwam was coming in, right? They, these guys decided, no, 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 one man, one vote, because we have the same skills, we have everything, and we're the black bourgeoisie, we've shown that we can make money, we've shown we are smart enough to take care of the thing, give us a vote. Again, they're not looking for independence, they're not talking about an identity, they want to live along with white people, but they just want more of the cake, that's all they want. You see, these little uh, um, innuendos are lost when you're being taught history. So, who made up the NDP leadership? The NDP leadership was dominated, again, let me repeat this, was dominated by Kalangas, right? So, Kalangas were like the bastardized versions of uh, of, of uh, Ndeveles, right? Ndeveles really came in and had a caste system, Entla, uh, Zanzi, Hole, and Kalangas were there, were a mixture of the two. They lived in the areas where the Ndevele lived, and they originally were from the Karanga clan, Mashingu area there. But they assimilated into the Ndevele um, uh, society and became Kalangas on their own. So they were like Makarad, Yoku Mandevele, 
right? They can switch into a Karanga Shona, but at the same time, they are more affili- affili- uh, affiliated with, uh, with uh, what do you call it, with with uh, Ndevele people, right? So they are a totally different entity from when you look at a Ndevele person or when you look at a Shona Karanga person. A Karanga is a totally different animal. And a lot of them are very smart up until now. I don't know why if it's be, I'm not going to try and stereotype or be prejudiced, but maybe it's the need to prove that they they are an identity on their own or because the lack of an identity themselves as a Kalanga clan makes them cling to trying to prove how smart they are or how good they are at doing things so whether they've always been prominent in whatever history of Zimbabwe we are speaking on but anyway the NSP leadership was dominated by nationalists of Kalanga ethnic so Joshua Nkomo Kalanga George Silondika Kalanga Jason Ziapa Pamoyo Kalanga. These were all powerful posts, and it was a seven-man executive committee that made up the NDP. Why am I mentioning Kalanga? I remember what I told you about the cementing and the uh, bastardization of the Shona identity and so forth. This is a group that is straddling between the bastardized versions that have been created. But on a deeper level within their own community, they don't really have a spot where they can uh, assimilate within. Right? But they can play both sides. Again, that's why I liken them to a colored person. But the colors of um, in our own black thing. And this was within the tribal world. So you can see they could speak Shona and they could speak Ndevele. They could understand Shona customs. They could also understand Ndevele customs. Right? Maybe they grew up more in Ndevele customs. So if a Ndevele person would look down upon them and uh, castigate them or or just uh, be prejudiced towards a Kalanga person, uh, they felt it. But at the same time, they could also be uh, criticized and chastised and looked down upon by a Karanga person. So they grew up with a different identity altogether that we ourselves may not understand, right? So, as I said, now that's that's the, 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 the group that we're talking about here, the Kalanga. Tensions of ethnicity became strongly apparent within the NDP uh, indicated by the debates uh, that you can find online and so forth over the name and so forth. Now, let's go to the name of Zimbabwe. This is one of the reasons why NDP had a problem. Zimbabwe was not supposed to be called Zimbabwe. It was actually supposed to be called, uh, uh, well, there was an argument. Other people wanted Zimbabwe to be uh, called Matopos. Right, and then the Shona uh, and the, the Shona clan wanted the Zimbabwe, so this is one of the issues that was there in NDP. But the Zimbabwe name ended up coming up uh, tops. A split within NDP occurred partly over issues of regional identities. Remember what I told you about the white settler com- uh, uh, administrative setup, and then when a group of Karanga nationalists broke with the NDP, they formed the Zimbabwe National Party. This party never lasted that long. Now. Uh, that's the first time the word Zimbabwe was used in a party. The guy who's attributed for that is a guy from Mashingo called Michael Mawem. You're going to see that Karangas from Mashingo come up a lot in these things when it comes to the tribal issues that we have to face with. So, that is where we stand for that. Now, Nkomo managed to contain a major split in the NDP by outmaneuvering the Karanga clique that had formed the ZNP by quickly bringing more Shona leaders into the upper leadership structure of the NDP. 
but because of the NDP's drive to politicize rural Zimbabwe, it was banned on the 9th of December 1961. This is when it was banned, but it, as soon as the NDP was banned, I'm thinking like maybe about six days later after it was banned, Zimbabwe had a more tumultuous uh, experience because it was both Zapu immediately took over from where NDP is so they just rechanged the name for all intent and purposes NDP became Zapu so it was banned 1962 it was the first mass nationalist party to use the name Zimbabwe to signify the acceptance of the name uh, of the imagined post-colonial nation that was the last time when anybody started arguing with uh, within ranks of changing of making our national country Matopos. So, ZANU was born, right, as a splinter party, and it soon branded itself as a new political formation that favored confrontational politics compared to Zapu's reformism and politics of compromise. I gotta take a break here and, and break this down for you. Basically, here, Zapu was intelligentsia. Right? Remember, intelligentsia, uh, businessmen, and so forth. However, they still, they still wanted to compromise and integrate. ZANU, on the other hand, wasn't all about that. They wanted confrontational politics and uh, we will fight to gain our, our politics. That's pretty much where the, the split was at the time. Until Zapu then changed and then started uh, uh, confronting also uh, with violence. So, while ZANU tried to set itself uh, apart from the previous party by emphasizing confrontation, everything else was exactly the same as Zapu. It defined itself as non-racial. It, it was very open to white people, Indian people, colors joining them. And they also wanted to share a common destiny and a common fate with all Africans with the character of Zimbabwe. Note everything that I'm saying here. Right up until the time there's a splint, spl splinter group uh, from Zapu. There is no mention of a Zimbabwean identity. There is none of that stuff. Whenever these guys were talking about that, there was never a policy that was uh, already being uh, talked about, analyzed, developed for Zimbabwean identity. Nothing of the sort. Nothing. Right? There was no consciousness movement. There were no theoretical discussions or think tanks happening on these things. Not even arguments. Nothing was going on. So the rich documents of the various nationalist parties always emphasize three issues. One, unity among Africans. Two, one man, one vote. Three, non-racialism. That's it. Nothing else. No identity, no nothing. Simple, simple things that they were, they were not simple. But those were the only things that they were talking about. So in reality, the nationalist movements remained fragmented. Zapu uh, with their splinter arm, Zipra. Zanu with their splinter arm, Zanla. Okay, so sorry. Zapu had an army unit called Zipra. Zanu had an army unit called Zanla. Then we also have the Front for Liberation of Zimbabwe. That was Frolizi. Then we have the United African National Council, UANC. For least UANC, I'm not really going to concentrate too much on that because that was just political gamesmanship and shenanigans. But you can always research that. I'm going to stick to Zapuzano. So this fragmentation also had a negative impact on the crystallization and formation of a cohesive national identity called Zimbabwe. None of this happened. These breakups, split-ups, everything that was going on happened along those tribal lines that I explained. Those tribal lines that were based on that administrative setup that the white settler um, uh, colonialists had set up. This is where this was based on. So, 
Historians have explained that uh, Zapu Zipra and Zanlu Zanda nationalists and their supporters usually ended up exchanging fire at the front. Why? This is what historians say. They say that the, the reason was because these people were trained to hate each other by their leaders. Right? They are leaders who wanted to justify the separate existence of their parties. Each party had a commissariat department. Up until now, now a, a commissar, a political commissar, plays a very important role within ZANU-PF. Right? We can look at the Kaskueres, for example. Uh, right after 2017, coup not coup, uh, Rugeje became the commissar. So a, a commissar has always played a very important role. Right now, the commissar is Matemadan. So, Commissariat department. The task of the commissariat uh, department at the time was uh, was tasked to teach recruits the history of the party, how the party was different. Note to this: how the party was different from the other, who the leaders were, and how they were different from the less revolutionary or sellout leaders of the rival party. Uh, this is what cadres were taught. Up until now, this has not changed. Let me repeat that. Up until now, this has not changed. A us against them mentality has always existed. It's always like football. That's why even up to now, people say Zimbabwean uh, African politics is a lot like football. And the commissar's job is to uh, propagate and continue that issue of us against them, right? Which is where America is going right now with the way the Democrats have gerrymandered uh, uh, the United States and are also following the same tactics which African nations have been doing for a while. Fragmentation makes it easier to control people, right? White settlers had already not yet had figured this out by the incorporating a language which they do not even understand and changing it to fit their own needs. So, the armed liberation struggle cast a shadow from under which... We now had the, the birth of militaries uh, or who were also uh, espousing violence. Violence became the norm. One, within themselves fighting Ian Smith and amongst themselves based on tribal lands or fighting against each other. Violence became the usual thing. Killing each other was not an issue now. And you, there was always a rationalization behind the killing. Whether you're a sellout, whether ideologically you differ, something. There was always a reason why. So, But what I'm trying to get to here, before we even get to Mugagao declaration, is that violence became normal. We can even talk about the Nari massacre. Things became normal. Right. It was only that when this was going on, it it was internalizing that culture, that violence and the impunity to do violence was right from there, the 1960s, 1970, was eroding any chance of after independence, we would have development of democracy or human rights culture. A culture was being formed during that time that people don't take into consideration. Violence was part of how Zimbabwe came to be. It's not something you can take away. It's just the same way as you can say Americans love their guns. It's the same here in Zimbabwe whereby violence was part of how Zimbabwe was birthed. It's a culture that is there. As much as people say Zimbabweans are timid, a typical Zimbabwe know that most Zimbabweans are violent by nature. You know, that is, people know that. It's maybe we are not as uh, uh, quick to use guns. But just fighting, just generally, Zimbabweans are, are, are aggressive. However, people don't see it. 
right? Unless you are part of the culture, then you realize that no, Zimbabweans are aggressive by nature. But where is this aggression coming from? It's birthed from this time in this period where this culture was already being internalized. So, under the shadow of exile and the armed struggle, the ghost of tribalism wreaked havoc within the nationalist movement right and it continued and continued this is something that was slowly but surely kept coming up kept coming up uh, we get to like people like reverend namaningi stole who was a nationalist he tried to explain these things he's the first uh, founder of zanu pf but he was never a communist he saw nationalism as a vehicle through which Africans could become fully part of Western civilization and Western modernity. But for all intents and purposes, Dambaningi Stole was a black bourgeoisie, right? And the, the biggest mistake that he made was that uh, he, he wanted to integrate. At first, he started Zanopev with that confrontational issue. But uh, why I'm mentioning Dabadingi Stole is that uh, Mgagao declaration mentions Dabadingi Stole a lot. So in many ways, the drama of colonialization is the history of the clash between European colonializers and the African bourgeoisie class. I see Stole's bourgeoisie class where although native to Africa, the African bourgeoisie class always depended on colonialists. Joshua Nkomo, Dambaningi Sitole, Ebo Muzorewa, and so forth, for legitimacy. We've learned how to speak like an Englishman. We've learned how to dress like an Englishman. We can actually hold a fucking knife like an Englishman. Accept us. This is where the African bourgeoisie came from. It accepted the principles implicit in colonialism, but it rejected the fact that white people were the ones who were controlling it. Why not us? Since you've taught us how to do it, why not let us do it? So it also claimed to be competent enough to rule that it had no uh, problems ruling the country since they now were white people, but in a black skin. So they were also traditionally legitimate rulers of uh, Africa. Africa bourgeoisie still exists up to now. This is why I'm trying to mention this when we're going further in our conversations. African bourgeoisie class still exists up to now. And it's different now recently from uh, African intelligentsia. Remember that. So, in order to replace the colonializers and rule its own people, uh, a number of theories were always being came up and uh, thrown to people. Remember Srank, uh, NDP, the Zapo had all tried to integrate. It was only Zanu Zanu, which always stuck to we are going to fight this. But they did not have a cohesive type of policy or intellectual thought in their organization to actually come up with an identity of what Zimbabwe would look like after they attain independence. No, far from it. So Stole exceeded to some extent in setting Zanu apart from Zapo. He was very good at articulating nationalist uh, politics in very radical terms. And he openly espoused confrontational politics. Now, around the 1970, though, uh, ZANU uh, was challenging ZAPU in terms of its commitment and it was getting more armed people. Stole was always been the, the president after that. Where Stole made a mistake was when he went to prison. And he got in prison for 11 years. And then what they did, they were so afraid of Stole. Damaningi Stole, that they isolated him from the rest of his, his crew. And then, after they isolated him, special branch uh, state agents uh, pretended to be uh, on his side. 
right and uh, sympathetic to the nationalist cause so when they were sympathetic to the nationalist cause Sitole started faithfully uh, using them to smuggle letters out of jail to his supporters one of those letters uh, where he was instructing his supporters to assassinate ian smith they used that evidence against him in trial and he was a facing execution this is when he made his biggest mistake under cross-examination, he publicly renounced the use of confrontational politics and the armed struggle as a way of gaining majority rule. He repudiated the armed struggle in order to escape conviction and possible execution. Those active in plotting against him after his repudiation of ZANU included Robert Mugabe, Bob, Edgar Tekere, Maurice Nyagumbo, and many others. This is where shit hit the fan. If we are looking right now on where we are in Zimbabwe, 2020, it starts right here. When Dabaningi Sitole in that jail, I mean at trial, repudiates ZANU-PF confrontational politics. Had he not that done that, we may have gone a totally different direction. And a new uh, leadership may not have existed. Right? Had he not been separated from his uh, fellow compatriots, it might have been a different story. But that situation right there, that repudiation he did of ZANU-PF, that began the climax of Stolle's downfall and the birth of the Mugagao Declaration by the Zimbabwe Freedom Fighters that was published in 1975, which unequivocally rejected Stolle as the leader of ZANU and ZANU. So here we are now. Now we are getting to the crux. Ever since Mugagao declaration was announced, there has not been any other declaration that came out of ZANU-PF up until uh, the communique that was, uh, and up until the war veterans started marching under Hunji. Look at the time span. Huge time span. And only after the war veterans started marching, we have communiques that then uh, were sent to Robert Mugabe by the war veterans just before he was deposed as the president. This is how important a document the Mugagao Declaration is when we're looking at where we are as Zimbabweans right now. Why is this declaration so important? This is very important for people to understand because when you hear Mugagao Declaration, you hear, you read it in the newspapers, but it doesn't hit home. Gagao Declaration basically is a document that is saying we are violent people. We are going to fight no matter what happens. Before Mgagao, there had been a, a break and negotiations had been happening whereby fighters were not fighting anymore. The countries that were supporting uh, our liberation movement had said you guys need to chill while we figure out a plan. You can't keep fighting. This is, has got no end. So what the Mgagao Declaration did was that it enumerated several reasons, first and foremost for the rejection of Sitole, right? They said he was misusing party finances. They said he was uh, failing to show up uh, for sympathizers, uh, I mean, to, to, to offer sympathy to his followers and to his fellow liberation fighters. Uh, there had been people who had died in Boroma. And he didn't show up. He's the president of the, the party. He never showed up. He never did anything. He was just uh, cell phone leadership. He's remote control leading, right? Uh, he did a unilateral action in forming a new leadership of ZANU without consulting detained ZANU leaders. So, this is where Mgagao begins. Now, let's take a break. So we don't lose focus of why am I saying all of this? I've been speaking for a while now, but why am I saying all of this? At the background of where Mugagao declaration is going, 
underneath don't forget we've always had that layer of tribalism that is based on what i mentioned before which is the anti-colonialist administrative setup that had cemented tribalism so why is this important where i'm coming back now after before still uh, uh, so after herbert chapel's assassination and death uh then there's uh, Stoller's dismissal the focus of tribalism and factionalism, regional factionalism within ZANU, always shifted. It's Chitepo, uh, it was Karanga against Manika. And then after that, it switched when Mugabe became the leader, then he became Zezuru against Karanga. Right? So within ZANU, there'd always been these factional uh, differences. But it was the one main group which always seemed to play issues was always the Karanga clan. Again, I am a Karanga myself, so I am being objective when I'm saying this. Karangas always seem to be somehow involved in these uh, tribal issues. We'll get back into why. It's, uh, Karangas played both sides. I'm not saying individuals, but Karangas were also, uh, there were a lot of Karangas as well. Karangas and Kalangas were special branch who were district administrators before 1980. Zezurus and the Manikas, not so much. Even though Manikas and Zezurus fought, were actually most of the time the people were on the ground, whilst the leadership would be made up of Karangas. This is not me talking out of my ass. You can ask any typical war vet you meet in the streets. These are things that I just said, but I never written in books. Right. We'll get into this. But Karangas are the... Cassius's of uh, the our liberation struggle, the Mark Antony's, the wingmen who may switch sides, right? But intelligent. Uh, first schools uh, that actually started bringing up uh, that black bourgeoisie, black intelligence. I was talking about when it comes to the Shona side. Yes, guess where? Fort Victoria, Masingo. So you go come here, right? So you need to take this into consideration as we keep talking. Right, so like I said, after that development of uh, Stole being uh, thrown out, it was also for the first time the appearance that uh, we now are using the gang uh, to get freedom. It was the first time that they cemented violence as a means to an end, right? So Fast forward to after 1980, uh, when war veterans uh, start calling themselves the first citizens of the nation, right? When they said that, people should not take that lightly because a war vet, uh, especially a war veteran, maybe Chimbuido or Mujiba, was trained in that ideology of the Mugagao declaration of if shit hits the fan, fight, or you may die. So you, we die till the end. You need to understand this. There's a reason why Mugabe, after 1980, tried to ignore war veterans and tried as much as possible to shake off that demon of the Mugagao declaration. He knew how dangerous that Mugagao declaration was because it could actually unseat him himself, right? So he tried to ignore the war veterans until uh, when they started marching against him in the 1990s, right? Mugabe had been ignoring war vets for a long time, right? trying to shake off that demon of what he created himself. And the only reason Mugabe had created that demon was because he was fighting two fronts. First, he had to get rid of Stole. Second, he was also going against Joshua Nkomo. 
right? But he took, he, he negotiated with the devil and the devil uh, came back to bite him in 2017, right? But this is where Mgagao declaration is very important. What we are trying to tell you here at the Revolutionary Star is that this is only the beginning because now we are looking at a re-indoctrination of what the Mgagao declaration meant. They are now training a new intelligentsia, a new bourgeoisie, new fighters who are going to be indoctrinated into the thoughts and the philosophy of what the Mgagao declaration was all about. You need to take that into consideration. And the Mugagao Declaration is drenched in nothing but violence. I'm not trying to say this to minimize or criticize the declaration. The war veterans and the liberation fighter movements who came up with the declaration had valid reasons why they did and they were fighting for their nation. But at the time when they were doing this, they had no idea that they were creating a philosophical document that could be used in the future, uh, decades later, to actually start uh, creating a political identity and a political philosophy, which is currently now being used within Zanopia. Think about that. This is deep, right? This is why we are trying to be as substantive as possible in this podcast, right? So first citizens... War veterans have now said we are the, we are citizens, but we are the citizens among citizens. We are the first citizens. And they are now trying to reclaim that, that they lost in 1975 before they die. These people know that they're going to die. They know they are not going to see the promised land. They know that they are not probably going to get the money that in all these years of ineptitude that the country had been run. These war veterans are not stupid. However, they now see that the only thing that they can do is fight against what they know is uh, the minds of the people. This is why Mgagao Declaration is playing such a huge role right now and why we are trying to make sure that we discuss it. It must be noted that ZANU originally emerged in circumstances marked by violence from both the intransient colonial settler state and from ZAPU that it had split from in 1963, right? The sheer intransience and bellicosity of the Rhodesia settler state, basically the sheer stubbornness of the Rhodesia settler state, also forced ZAPU and ZANU into militancy and embraced violence as a legitimate tool of liberation. Violence was already there, but they never had anything in which they would openly say we are we are violent. There's only one document throughout the liberation movement where violence is actually openly attributed to, as in we are going to fight if we need to, and that's the Mgagao Declaration. Every other time they are willing to negotiate, yes, we will fight, but we are only fighting for our freedom. They are never really specific. The Mgagao Declaration cements that for the first time. And I'm trying to make you understand that while it's cementing that, a a layer underneath the tribalism and the factionalism still exists. So, what does this mean, uh, comrades, to where we are now? Well, firstly, the, the militarization of the liberation movement, together with the development of the commandist mentality, fused with regimental attributes. Basically, I'm saying that the... Uh, militarization was imbued into citizens right after that they were imbued with uh, the military mentality of uh, listening to your commander and then for example in zanu pf and in mdc the structures are almost in a uh, military type of form whereby the top 
going down gives uh, the commandment. Uh, national uh, MDC and ZANU PF, when you look at their structures, is exactly the same. It's it, it is structured in a military type of uh, fashion, right? The prominence of the party leader, both MDC and MDC Alliance have that, right? And this also uh, gradually evolves or devolves, whichever word you want to use, into uh, a leader becoming a personality cult, as we see right now happening with Nelson Chamisa after Morgan Changirai passed away. Right, this is not something new. We cannot criticize MDC alone because ZANU PF has been doing it for a while. Right now, there is an effort to make ED Mnangagwa a personality cult, but it is not because Mnangagwa wants to be a personality cult. The way the system has been set up and the structures within those two political parties. Check that with the history that they have dating back from the Mgagao Declaration, dating back to the colonialist settler mentality forces us down a path whereby you only have personality cults and leadership structures like that. We have no choice. You can't blame the people in power right now because their organizations are structured that way for them to actually become personality cults. If you try and fight them, there is no room for dissension. That's why you see Monzora and Komichi and Kupe fighting it out right now. And people are now hating them on a personal basis because that's where the this, this, this structure and the infrastructure in Zimbabwe is already fucked the democracy culture and so forth that NGOs and things try to talk about is nonsense it's nonsense from 1975 right up until now we have created an infrastructure that you cannot dismantle within five years it's going to take years to dismantle it a decade right we thought we could re uh, what's the word we could uh, Rechange that or refresh it, reboot it in 2017 when uh, Mugabe was deposed. But people didn't realize this is why I'm mentioning again Gagao declaration that people did not realize that the reboot that was going on at that time was within ZANU PF, whereby war veterans and army people were going back and hearkening back to the Mugagao declaration days. They were rebooting their own system and they're continuously doing it up until now because they realize that they are losing the battle when it comes to the voters. Most of the people that vote for them are dying, right? It's the older generation and Zimbabwe is becoming younger and younger. So they are going to have to re-indoctrinate these people back to the Mugagao declaration days. It is slowly happening. You will see it as we continuously go through. The only reason why it has been uh, paused right now, it's, it's been stalled, is because of our economic uh, problems that we have currently. But best believe that this indoctrination process is happening. However, both parties still have the same problem whereby uh, their organizations have, have been formed in such a way that a personality cult will be there. A militaristic approach which does not brook any type of dissent within file and rank is there. Whether you're an MDC alliance, MDCT, ZANU-PF, ZAPU, you do not have the opportunity to dissent against the leader. That is not democracy. No matter where you go, you whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, until recently with Trump, you are allowed to to voice opinions against your leader. Right now in Zimbabwe, with the MDC alliance or ZANU-PF, you cannot do that. And you can't blame the leaders who are in power right now because they, this is something that started from 1975 uh, right up until now. 
MDC itself had to change as a trade unionist party so that they could fight against ZANU-PF. They didn't realize by trying to fight against ZANU-PF, they became ZANU-PF themselves. And up until now, they don't realize that they assimilate some of the ZANU-PF tendencies, which are bad because they are based upon a document that has been now turned into a political treatise, which it was not supposed to be a treatise. It was not supposed to be a political document based on uh, political philosophy. But that is what the Mgagao Declaration has now become in Zimbabwe. Intelligentsia, here, a typical intelligentsia will tell you that is very true. These things start from 1975 when Mugabe becomes a leader based on a piece of paper that allows violence to be part of politics. Finishing clap. So, MDC now finds itself devolving into this state of affairs as well, when you're looking at uh, the year 2020. And it can also date back its issues to Mgagao declaration. The way they decided to fight ZANU-PF, the way even, for example, how the vanguard was formed, why it was formed. All of these are actually very valid reasons why they formed themselves as a party like that. But in changing your party in order to adjust to your opposition, which is ZANU-PF, you yourself also have to change your own ideology and philosophy on how you rationalize Zurukitikapa ground. And this is what happened to MDC allowance. They became a ZANU-PF light. The constitutional crisis that they are facing right now within the MDC is based on the retaliation that they, uh, the defense mechanisms that they created to fight against ZANU-PF and infiltrators from ZANU-PF. But they themselves ended up becoming ZANU-PF. It's sad, but this is where we are. So, the genesis of a political party seems to have bearing on the party's future development. How a party starts usually ends up with how a party in the future will actually develop. So, the Zimbabwean case seems to illustrate that the liberation movements uh, that we had or the liberation uh, struggle, they ended up transforming themselves not into a democratic political party but into a authoritarian party. Right, and it was tagged with violence. Right, so this is where we are now. How do we change this? How do we move forward? Well, war veterans who went to Mugagao, Tanzania, right, they never saw their document as ending up like this. That's the honest truth. They never did. If they had, they, I am sure, they would have put a caveat within those situations because right now in Zimbabwe we have war veterans who are MDC alliance people but don't get it wrong they still have that same Gagao declaration mentality however you need to separate the emotion the political emotion and what's actually on the ground the problem is that there always seems to be a conflation of the two and people do not know how to distinguish between the two Right? That's where you see that soccer mentality in politics, whereby it's us against them, propagated by a commissariat from both the MDC alliance and the ZANU-PF side, playing out. How do you change this? It's not easy. Because underneath what I'm just saying, there is also another layer of tribalism based on factionally, regional factionalism that dates back to pre-colonial times and dates back to languages that we now use on a day-to-day basis and still teach our children that are from a white settler mentality. Now, when we're talking about this from a pan-Africanist revolutionary star perspective, we have a long way to go. A long way to go. How do these type of flare-ups come from a the 
sub-level traditional sector. We go back to that Karanga thing I was telling you about. Karangas were known at the time to uh, were usually the ones who were put as district administrators of keeps. Like for example, the Mashonal and Central. Most people who helped the white person uh, run a, a keep or the reserves, were the, the new reserves where black people were put in concentration camps. A keep was the a keep was a concentration camp. But usually the people or the black person who was in charge of the keep was a person from Mashingu. Because at the time, people were, were, were got from Mashingo. Who were people, Mashingo people? Karangas. When the Ndevele were fighting Africans, they were fighting against Karangas. The Kalanga were the results. That's why you have Kalanga. So it goes deeper. But so at the same time that uh, within the Karanga clan, there were Karangas who worked with white people. Then there were Karangas who did not want to work with white people. And there is actually a split up until now in 2020 where there are sellouts within Karangas. And then there are other Karangas who were betrayed by Karangas and ended up fighting the war. This, this history and genealogy still exists up until now where you can go into a village and you can tell who worked for special branch, which line will sell out and how it happened. So it goes deeper and deeper. White people came and came up with an administrative structure, but they could not take away the culture and the fabric of what it means to be African. So we now in 2020 are faced with a situation where we have a fabric which is African to the bone, trying to exist with a Western uh, society way of thinking. The way you say you set up your political party, the way you run your country, the way you speak the language, the way you deal with the global world. We are all using a, a template based by white people. But our uniqueness, our psyche and the way we actually do think, Oh my God, it's as African as it gets. And it's based on beefs that were there before white people came. Uti Mashaya Mumbe was betrayed by Karangas, right? That's how he ended up being one of the people we say is a hero. But at the same time, Mashaya Mumbe is a hero. Chief Mashaya Mumbe is a hero. There are Karanga people who betrayed him. This plays out within Zezurus. It plays out within Manika. It also plays out within Kalangas themselves, as well as Develes, Right? So it goes deeper and deeper, but this is what it is to be Zimbabwean. These are the issues we need to fight and try and fix as uh, comrades in arms and see how we can best move forward. Again, this is just a reference podcast. It's just meant to always refer to when we mention Mugagao and the dichotomy that exists within Zimbabwe as in the different things we are fighting against. I use the Karangas as an example because I myself is a Karanga. But this plays out throughout all the other tribal uh, groups that we have, right? So, how is the? how can I sum this up? Here's the best way to sum up the problem we have as Africans, which any person who is African, whether he is Zimbabwean or wherever, will understand. We all go to church, we pray to God, uh, we are either Roman Catholic or so forth. However, uh, if everything else fails, we will still go to a traditional healer. Or at times we will go and to our Chivanu and figure out if everything is okay. That split personality, that bipolar situation we have as Africans where as much as we want to be Christians, 
Chivanu or the Ubuntu in us always tries to make sure that we did the right thing within our family circles just in case some demons come back that we do not understand because the, this is a white man thing. They don't, white people don't understand this. That is what I'm trying to explain to you. That problem that we all know exists within our culture. We know people in our families who are like that. That is an example of what Zimbabwe is at a national level on everything. That bipolar problem. And it plays out in how our structures, our institutions are now set up in such that we always wind up in the bad place because we can't mesh the two worlds together. And we always try and use our intelligence to mesh them up. But this is like, how are you going to mesh up logic and emotion? It won't work. And until we break away from that, we will always be faced with this problem. And this is what our podcast is trying to figure out. What is the way forward? What is the new intelligence here? Let us not allow the Mgagao declaration and the reinvigorated future ZANU-PF party start the mantra and the new ideological thinking of the future. Let it be separate from that. Let not another 50 years come. Let us come up with our own vision of what we need to be as what does it mean to have a Zimbabwean identity. Anyway... I appreciate you listening to our reference podcast. This has been uh, Comrade uh, Super Cabral coming out from Harare, Zimbabwe. And I wish you the best wherever you are. Roger out.